Welcome to CAA Conversations. My name is Steve Rossi. I'm an assistant professor and sculpture program head at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. In this conversation with artist, educator, gallery director, and curator, Allison McNulty, we touch on topics of site responsiveness, site specificity, performance, and environmental ethics as they relate to foundations and studio art pedagogy, as well as connections with these topics in each of our creative practices. Allison is an interdisciplinary artist based in the Hudson Valley of New York. She is a part-time assistant professor at Parsons School of Design at the New School, where she teaches in the first-year program. She is also currently the director of Ann Street Gallery, a contemporary art space in Newburgh, New York, which is a program of Safe Harbors of the Hudson, a nonprofit organization that combines supportive housing and the arts. Her practice as an artist explores the layered histories and poetics of ordinary reclaimed materials, precarity in sites, species, and ecological entanglements. Her work has been presented at museums, galleries, and conferences at, and unconventional spaces throughout the U.S. and Europe and Colombia. She has been awarded a Saltonstall Foundation Residency Fellowship, an Arts Mid-Hudson Individual Artist Commission, and in support of her work with the Artist in Vacancy Initiative of the Newburgh Community Land Bank, she was awarded the Arts Mid-Hudson Empowered Artist Grant. Could you tell us a little bit about the Newburgh Land Bank and your recent work transforming a house in the city of Newburgh? Sure, I've just concluded an on-site project here in the city of Newburgh called House Project Newburgh, in which I was working with the Newburgh Community Land Bank. And the Land Bank is a local nonprofit whose mission is to stabilize and revitalize abandoned properties in the city to create more equitable community. Um, and I worked with an initiative called Artist in Vacancy, which is a, actually a residency in which the land bank opens properties that are being held or banked for eventual renovation as temporary sites for aesthetic research, creative intervention, and community engagement. So um, I just, I worked in this house over several months. It was a project um, about which I was in conversation with the land bank uh, for a couple of years, actually, since about 2021. And it was just stalled several times due to the pandemic, um, high demand for housing in Newburgh as everywhere else. Um, and then eventually I, I was just able to um, begin using uh, the house uh, it really without very many stipulations. Um, and what I, you know, my approach was just to at first uh, spend a lot of time in the place to sort of bring my my body and all of my um, ways of sensing the world as an embodied being into the neighborhood, into uh, you know the architecture of the house, and uh, just sort of rather than say like how do I want to transform this place um, more with like a developer's attitude, um, just look at what's already happening here um, and how can I observe it, uh, listen to it, uh, what sort of things can I um, just sort of slowly become part of rather than disturbing. Um, and eventually I, I think the question that was always in my mind is like, why is this um, you know, place with very little uh, uh, utility in terms of how it might function, right? It's, it's uninhabitable. Um, how might it have value? And where can I use um, gestures of intervention in the architecture, allowing in light, um, arrangements of material, um, and eventually bringing in um, projections and some materials from the nearby Newburgh uh, riverfront, the Hudson Riverfront, um, into the house to sort of make um, 
more apparent or more sensible um, to others who might also come into the house to witness um, this place uh, without having spent as much time and uh, attention there as I had. So the Oh, one of the things that really stuck out to me as you were um, organizing the different open houses and really bringing people through and creating these these events um, on your own on kind of a DIY kind of a level um, was touring touring the house the way that you were drawing the viewers' attention to these processes of like growth and decay that were sort of both natural but then also revealed in a context of the built environment. And so like a couple of the details that you were highlighting that really stood out to me were like um, the uh, light that you would be projecting onto like a spider web. Um, so like a very small detail like that, that like spider webs between floor joists, because a lot of those, you know, the, the floor surface would be, you'd be able to sort of look straight down into the basement and you could also look straight up into the, um, um, into the, the second floor because you're really working with like a, a rough architectural shell essentially like brick walls and a roof and really that that's about it everything else is is pretty much um, bare bones um, and so the way that you were kind of highlighting those details in a very delicate kind of a way but also very intentional way I just found really interesting yeah so I should have said yeah there's um, the sort of format the project took was um, to open it uh, maybe about over three months, several, maybe half a dozen times um, to the public. And um, so the way you've described the house as bare bones, I really, I really was thinking about the house um, a lot as a body, right? As a, mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in, in ways like a body of memory, right? Like a mm -hmm. metaphor like that, but also, um, you know, in the, the structure itself, uh, the wood, that the the tree bodies that form the joists and the, um, the supports in the walls and the beams um, kind of coming apart in the roof. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of ecological entanglements. Um, mm -hmm. right? The house is an ecological space and the house is a body. Those are sort of two metaphors that, um, you, you know, I was looking for physical evidence of in the house. And um, some of those entanglements or growth or decay, I would see things like, um, you know, where there was maybe a, a hole in the floorboard um, from rain damage or something like that, I might um, notice a spider web there, as you said, and, and light it uh, so that others might notice it as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I was thinking a lot, you know, spiders were some of the most prevalent visible other beings in the house in my residency there. Um, and uh, I, I was thinking about the way that when structure comes apart, um, what moves in, right? What comes back? Mm -hmm. And um, the spiders um, gave me a lot of hope, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're dwelling, their webs are just, um, they're so intricate and structured and, um, you know, they're making this sort of home in, within this, um, you know, vacant body of a, a prior home. And so I was, I was thinking about, you know, I think about spider webs a lot in my own home and in my own practice works on paper and things like that too. So I'm always thinking about them um, and how we cohabitate and um, share, share space, right? Homes within homes and um, how I don't, I try, I try very hard to not reject that premise that we can live together. Um, and I, I see the spiders sort of knitting those 
um, ruptures in the structure back together. I don't mean mm -hmm. literally holding them together, of course, but like knitting themselves into the spaces that open when our structures fail. I see that yeah. as um, really beautiful and really yeah. sort of hopeful and literal mm -hmm. connection or like vines coming in. Um, like one like 30 foot anemic vine, you know, someone visited and said, you know, I kept thinking about that anemic vine that went through, you know, like two stories of the house. Um, and there's no real apparent way that it goes outside. But he said, there must be one leaf outside mm -hmm. somewhere mm -hmm. taking that sun and bringing in yeah. energy. Um, yeah. So yeah, those sort of, those sort of growth, regrowth, like re-entang, you know, evidence of entanglement was something um the non-human right um mm -hmm. in, a, in a literal physical way and then there's all of these sort of like accumulations of matter right that are literally the the sort of um you know combination of inhabitants and materiality over time right so that's it's you know i see dust as just like physical material collections of history so um those the way things break down and accumulate mm -hmm. um I think about as um, very specific to place and history. Mm, so yeah. one example might be um, the the sort of red iron oxide, you know, in the in the bricks, right? That iron in the red brick structure, as those bricks began to uh, decay, I see all the the slightly red dust on the floor, and it just really intrigued me. Mm. Uh, I thought, what? What if on an embodied level, um, we might just respond in an embodied way, like that we might have some kind of mineral sympathy with that iron mm. oxide, you know, just mm. uh, seeing it rather than intellectualizing it um, in the house itself. And so one one of the gestures I made was to just grind and grind and grind on those bricks um, mm. to make a lot of red dust in the, in the space and thinking about you know, the how that's, it's kind of like, um, yeah, it, 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 it felt like the house being a body and, and my body were able to relate through that gesture of coming apart. Yeah. It's really interesting. One of the things that I was thinking about too, when I was viewing the space was the way that you were also kind of uh, working with and also against kind of uh, wind and the weather and the temperature. Um, because I visited it on a day when it was probably close to 30 degrees outside, maybe, maybe a little warmer. Um, and so it was that temperature in the house as well. And that was the space that you had been working in for several hours um, before people started coming through. And so I was thinking about the way that your kind of your own body then is impacted by conditions in the environment that relate to kind of um, a comfortable temperature if you're in there in the summer versus an uncomfortable kind of cold temperature and the way that that becomes part of the experience of the space. In your experience as as the as kind of the person that's intervening in the space and then the viewer's experience as well um the way that kind of like wind and the weather became elements of the of the experience because um, you had the windows opened in such a way um that light was able to pass through and wind was able to pass through like it wasn't a sealed structure right yeah i think um weather season um day to night like all of all of the cycles from from kind of an hour to hour basis of how the light changes to a uh, um you know daylight to darkness i often held the the public openings um 
which I should say that, you know, the, the project transition for each opening, it was an evolving thing. Um, and, you know, I think you came back at least a couple of times, but where it started when I first inviting the public in to where it ended, um, they're very different experiences. And and so it's, it's like inviting people into um, that changing uh, weather as well. So like, you know, people started coming in in the late fall and I ended the project in December. <laughs> and um, so that, that embodied experience really shifted and it also really shifted if people came, you know, I kept sort of, um, looking, you know, at, at the changing sunset every day and, and trying to hold the openings an hour before sunset until an hour after. Right. And, um, there weren't, there, it, it's not a comfortable space, right. It's mm -hmm. a very uncomfortable space. It's raw, it's dirty, it's cold. <laughs> it's, um, you know, that you got to really, you know, folks could only walk on certain paths that I had designated, um, yeah that were safe. And so there were all of these factors that, um, you know, particularly that transition from, from light to dark, which happened at every opening, um, mm -hmm. it's like pretty uncomfortable. And I think all of those factors that, that you brought up and that I'm mentioning, um, I, I, I tried to use as a way to heighten people's, um, awareness of their, their body in space, right? It, um, there's a sense of, um, kind of coming alive to the space mm -hmm. in a way mm -hmm. that uh, I, I think couldn't be repeated elsewhere. And um, it's it's a challenge to um, bring an experience like a really severely neglected, um, what most people would call empty, right? I, I don't see the house as empty. I see it as full of so much information, material and spatial information. Mm -hmm. um, maybe even intangible sorts of um, movements and energies, animal um, traces and tracks, you know, thinking about long, yeah, long and short cycles, but I, all of that discomfort, or even when there's really beautiful light and a warm breeze <laughs> um, in early fall or something like that, it just, um, it, I really tried to see how can I collaborate with something like the weather <laughs> in mm -hmm. an old house <laughs> to, yeah to kind of um, make people more aware of their body as like a sensing instrument and to take in information that mm -hmm. way. And it, it, one other thing that um, was a necessity, um, but uh, um, also sort of promoted uh, aware, the awareness of a body, your own body and space was that, um, you know, probably folks are wondering at this point, how are you able to let people into such an environment where um, in one place you may fall through the floor or something like that, or there's no yeah. railing on the staircase. Um, and uh, we we did a, a liability waiver um, through the land bank and everyone who came in needed to sign uh, their liability away to come in the house. And then I would sort of explain uh, where they could walk on a swept path mm -hmm. um, across the house, up the stairs, um, and on a little platform upstairs. And that signing of the waiver um, was just, it's just slowed people down, right? Like it just, you'd have to like wait, read and sign the thing at the door, wait for instructions on where to walk. And you, you were aware, like I just signed my rights away because I'm entering a space that is potentially dangerous mm -hmm. and I need to watch where I walk. And of course we took a lot of care um, I don't intend for any of my work to be actually you know, a, a danger to anyone, but it just means like, here's a space where you need to slow down, 
uh, watch where you're putting your feet um, and be aware of who's around you. And I would just see people um, kind of looking behind them before they stepped or turned and um, kind of looking out for other people. Oh, watch your step there in a way that I don't think I've ever seen in a gallery or museum. Yeah. Um, and that was really interesting to me. Yep. Um, yeah, it's all really interesting. Um, could you talk about the Parsons Foundations class, Space Materiality, and how you address the curriculum of this first year course by investigating site responsiveness and relationality with your students? Yeah, so the class um, that I teach at Parsons uh, School of Design um, at the new school um, is a first year required class. Um, it, it's the 3D component, um, kind of a progressive um, component. 3D component of the foundations or core curriculum. Um, the, the curriculum that is, uh, we're asked to cover, um, has a, has a skill set that most 3D design or sculpture one, two courses have. Um, but, uh, conceptually they ask us to cover at least three sections in the class. The first being haptic space and materiality, uh, the second being inhabited space and materiality, and the third, being um, social and environmental space materiality. And um, I'll give myself away here, but I always uh, change that environmental to ecological. <laughs> mm. um, and I think that, you know, it, the environment um, is, a, is a, a little bit more loaded um, and ecological is, is, I think, more what we're getting at just in terms of, um, you know, I, I use that last section of the class to, um, you know, I take the students outside the classroom, right? So there's a sense in the in the in the curriculum that I just mentioned that the students start with um, dealing with projects on an immediate sort of touch space. I always tell them that that we're working on this like um, like your hug space, right? If you just sort of like embrace your own arms, um, that we're working on that scale, but also sort of um, what we end up coming to is that 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 is a, a sort of an object scale and relationship, meaning we're looking at something, an object outside ourselves. Yeah. We're looking from the outside um, and we're distinct from it. You know, mm -hmm. we, we can walk around it, see it from all sides or angles. Um, is, is it just to clarify, is this um, uh, the, an investigation that you do with that first project, the haptic space project, or is this how you're folding this into the, the third project? No, um, I'm I'm just I'm drawing a kind of a line between where we start and where we end the semester to get to re site responsiveness. Oh, I see. Right. So yeah. you're talking about starting with kind of object based investigations and then thinking more about sort of environmental concerns in that way. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. So. Yeah, I got we, you. So we start the semester with haptic space and materiality, move to inhabited space and materiality and end the semester with social and ecological space and materiality. Yeah, and so within within that haptic space framework, you're thinking about sort of an object-based investigation, right? Some things that relate to that sense of touch. Yeah. And so we're thinking about um an ob you know, starting with object making, looking at something that is distinct and outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um and uh how we're used to thinking, I think, about sculpture. Um mm -hmm. And in the second section of the class or the second phase of the class, um, we're looking at inhabitable space and materiality and um, our scale remains the same, but we start thinking of our scale as a model um, for spaces that are inhabitable. Mm -hmm. um, 
And so we 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 start thinking about how we enter um, 3D spaces, mm -hmm. right? And talk about architecture, for instance, excuse me, for instance. Um, but we we start to lose this boundary between um, the self and the art, right? So we right, right. we look at enterable spaces. We look at um, how we interact with the art, activate the art, participate in the art. Um, and how time becomes something that um, we consider in in designing models for um, inhabitable spaces, right? Mm -hmm. Even just thinking about how we want light and shadow to fall and illuminate the inside of a inhabitable space. Um, so yeah. by the time we're we're getting to the end of the you know the third section of the class and thinking about social and ecological space, um, I'm I'm then sort of bringing the students. Um, into um, a relationship with the world where um, the art we're making is part of just an ongoing unfolding experience. And mm -hmm. there's um, almost complete porousness between what is us and what might be the art or the experience we're having with it. Mm -hmm. So that last project um, that I do um, is is called um, performative object, and we the sort of elements we focus on in, in terms of a curriculum course are time, um, site, and relation. So in terms of uh, site responsiveness and relationality for that project, um, you know the students are charged with making a um, performative object in which I um, explain to them as an object that um, they craft uh, that has to be um, somehow having an uh, ergonomic relationship to their body, meaning they've got to have a way that their body meets, holds on to, wears, um, or activates this object. Mm -hmm. And the object should shift a relationship with someone, others, um, or something else in their environment. And mm -hmm. in particular, um, we gear this uh, performative object uh, toward uh, shifting a relationship in, in a specific site. So we, you know, we take a um, observational research walk to Washington Square Park, which is about a half mile from the school. Um, and we, uh, you know, I, I'll give them a, a site guide uh, I'll ask them to investigate the park um, in lots of different ways. Um, we'll usually come back to campus and have um, some prompts and questions to reflect on the observational research walk. And then we'll also look at um, the history of the site. Uh, the students every semester put together a slideshow um, of the history and different resources and stories and um, monuments. Um, and of course, different layers of history about the park, uh, which they might investigate in their project. Yeah, super interesting. Like a couple of things that sort of um, go through my mind as as you're talking. Um, so myself having experience teaching the space materiality class at Parsons um, and that interdisciplinary curriculum uh, was something that I was always kind of enamored with um, while I was working there and just was fascinated to see how um, students in a first year foundations context really were able to kind of follow the thread between 
kind of object making and then like an environmental experience and, and thinking about these different disciplines as they relate to um, uh, potentially uh, sculpture, product design, fashion design, architecture. And you're sort of having all these different conversations kind of woven through the course curriculum um, in contrast to my own foundation's experience, which was much more sort of um, based in um, like traditional uh, understanding of like an art object and object making and design principles in that way. Um, it was interesting for me to sort of, it, the, I felt like working uh, with within the, the framework of the space materiality class helped to expand kind of my own vision of like what's possible in a foundation's curriculum. Um, but then also really brought in all of these different kind of interdisciplinary conversations, which my my work as as my own creative practice um, always has sort of this interest in, in, in interdisciplinarity in different ways. Um, and so um, kind of like you was really excited to discover these different possibilities where like my own research could kind of come, my own research interests could kind of come in into play in a lot of different ways, um, similar to kind of what you're describing as you're you're talking about the um, intense focus and uh, kind of embodied experience that you're having with the Newburgh Land Bank project. And then also the way that you're kind of modeling that for your students and, and drawing upon that in the, the course curriculum. Yeah, it, um, you know, when we're in a, a project, I think um, we're super interested in the nuances, <laughs> right? The specificities, the particularities and, um, you know, in thinking about something like the difference between the the red brick dust and like the dust of a, a floorboard, you know, kind of disintegrating, like that's a very particular um, set of uh, observations and then research and concerns, like looking it up. What is in that dust? What is that? You know, like um, yeah. how old is this dust? What's the geological process that produced mm -hmm. these bricks? So I'm interested in all those layers of history, but it, it's it's to be so specific sometimes that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that I even would have like sort of put together this sense of how closely it's tied to this uh, foundation <laughs> class because um, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty in-depth research and it, it's pretty, um, again, nuanced ideas that you're introducing to first year students who maybe are going to study fashion or strategic mm -hmm. management and design or um, uh, architecture or uh, fine art photography, you know, they're, they're in all of these different um trajectories for their career paths and and somehow I got to bring them into <laughs> um, how to understand uh, relationality in the first year class but what what we do is just um you know we just approach it um on a again an embodied level and and like you said it it just kind of comes together um so you know when I teach this in the fall this is our last project and it, of course it intersected with <laughs> the the weather issues um again you you know, being very cold when in, in the house project, um, when we took the observational um, research walk with the students uh, to to Washington Square Park, um, my class, I uh, had two sections of this class this past fall, and they're, they're both in the evening, right? So um, one class meeting at 7 p.m. and one class meeting at 4 p.m. And um, it happened to be a very cold day. And I I had planned to do it the following class, but it called for rain and cold. And I thought, well, let's cut our losses and just uh, while it's dry, at least. <laughs> so we we went on this walk um, and I was a little um, kind of wondering, you know, if if it was going to be just like all they're thinking about is the cold and it's going to be kind of a lost uh, class meeting or something. And I just decided to do it. I cut it a little short 
we did all of the reflection back in the classroom instead of at the park. Um, but it was quite uncomfortable. Um, and I, you know, when we take this walk, I send students um, from the classroom to the park. I ask them to be silent. I just ask them to like switch into um, I'm no longer inserting myself in a space. Um, just like I talked about it, approaching the house project, right? I'm not um, sort of like, I'm here. What am I going to make, right? More like listening and looking like what's already here that I can respond to with my work. And they they kind of get that. Like they take the they take it on seriously to walk in silence, give them a little bit of directional information when we get to the park. Um, and then we had, you know, they walk around um, by themselves and they can talk to park rangers. They can talk to other visitors. They could talk to each other if they have questions, but really they're trying to kind of um, listen more than speak and, and, and watch what's going on. Um, and you know that the while while I was walking around the park, I was sort of going, yeah, it's really cold. It's really uncomfortable. <laughs> um, my, you know, that my fingers are going numb. Like, are the are the you know are the students going to be observing anything worthwhile? And then I thought, well, actually, what is being cold? You know, and I thought, where am I cold? And then I started thinking about my body. Like, my face is burning a little bit. My fingertips are burning a little bit. My I thought my ankles are cold. And then I thought, gosh, I never think about my ankles, <laughs> right? So it just, it started to bring me really into an awareness of my body right then. And and um, when the students came back, I think they were trying to be good sports and they were they were not, you know, I said, what did you notice? What did you experience? Um, what, what drew you to it? What repelled you? Who'd you talk to? And I think they were trying to be good sports and no one wanted to be complaining about the cold. But I said, gosh, I was freezing out there. Were you cold? And they were like, yeah, we were cold, but we we're trying to do our job, you know? And um, I said, well, it occurred to me a couple things, you know, um, I started thinking about, you know, where am I cold in my body and how, you know, is it a real danger? You know, am I, is it cold enough that I'm actually going to hurt myself by being out here? No, it's not. It's just like, I'm used to being so comfortable all the time, <clears throat> but it, it was all, you know, it was top of mind. And, mm -hmm. and then the students started saying, yeah, you know, you know, what is it to be really cold? Well, it means we're alive, you know, like we can sense the cold. And then another student says, yeah. And, um, you know, there was a, there's always a homeless encampment in the northeast corner of the park and the, you know, the park rangers were clearing them out. Um, and it made me think a lot about how we just get to be out there for half an hour and come back to this warm space and we have our hats and gloves and these people are living in tents out there and they don't know where they're going to go tonight if they don't take the city's offer for help, you know? And, and so there became some really great conversations out of just cold, just being cold, you know, just putting ourselves outside in the cold where yeah. we might not have otherwise that really connected the social and the ecological. Um, and again, I think that's a the sort of premise of that, that project is how do they nest together or overlap like a Venn diagram yeah. um, which are also prevalent in the house. And, yeah. and your work is a lot, a lot like that too. I mean, you're not so much working in the outdoors, but you did have your students um, working outside, right? Yeah. So in the, in that class that I developed at St. Joseph's university um, called uh, sculpture in the environment, uh, which was developed uh, in a way to address a lot of these uh, a lot of these topics that we're discussing right now. Like um, I was focusing, or I've been focusing on environmental art, uh, but then I've also been focusing on the field of environmental ethics, 
Um, and that sculpture in the environment class, um, I was able to get it certified for something that we have at St. Joseph's um, uh, called the Ethics Intensive um, GEP, General Education Program Overlay. Mm -hmm. yeah. So we're, we're focusing on, um, it's sort of like a, it's, it's like a hybrid philosophy class along with a studio art class. And so to fulfill the ethics intensive portion of the class, uh, we're, we're looking at um, the field of environmental ethics and the students are um, utilizing the ethical frameworks of natural law, uh, utilitarianism, and a deontological perspective to kind of uh, create arguments for or against certain environmental themes um, that they're um, doing research on. So we're looking at um, the way public policy is shaped. And then we're also looking at how contemporary artists are drawing attention to um, environmental themes in their work. And then I'm trying to kind of bring those two worlds together where I'm having students research um, kind of key um, environmental artists. So for instance, um, if they're researching Helen and Newton Harrison and um, a student is doing a presentation on their shrimp farm survival piece number two, and they're looking at the way that 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 project is highlighting um, very low cost uh, protein production of like raising shrimp that are feeding on algae that is fed by the sun. Um, and the different, and, and their the, the Harrisons were displaying that work in the seventies in a museum context. And the way that that, that project and that museum intervention that they're doing is drawing attention to all these different ecological themes. And so I'll ask students then, to choose a, a, an ecological theme that they're interested in, that they're concerned in, con they're concerned with. And so this, this one um, project here um, by the Harrison's Shrimp Farm, students in the past could um, have chosen to look at um, um, potentially since, since they're raising shrimp, they, that can then connect to say, um, um, ecosystem degradation in a, a marine context. And so they could look at, say, like the causes and the effects of, of overfishing and then create use one of those ethical frameworks that I mentioned earlier to kind of create an argument um, uh, for or against the um, that practice of what, you know, commercial fishing and, and whether or not like what's legal, what's not legal. How do you create an argument around re regulation for or against it? Um, and so we look at that within the context of, of thinking about um uh, a studio art project that is designed uh, collaboratively, uh, where I've been partnering with the Barnes Arboretum, which is close, uh, right, right near campus, and thinking about um, ways that students can create a social space, actually, and this connects to my experience working within the, the space materiality curriculum at Parsons, um, where we're thinking about kind of a social and um, uh, environmental space um, that students can be um, can can actually be going into a landscape, in this case, the Arboretum, and thinking about uh, creative seating solutions for um, guests of, of the Arboretum. And so that was a, a project that was developed through a partnership with um, staff that was managing the Arboretum space. Um, and I, I reached out to, to, um, to that team of people to see like, what were their needs? You know, thinking about it from like a social practice, public art point perspective. Of like, what are the what are the needs in the community here? Um, and one of the needs that that was mentioned uh, in the arboretum environment was there was a lack of seating. And so then I was thinking about, all right, like what can we do in a sculpture? Um, what can I do with sculpture curriculum to sort of address this need of a lack of seating? 
and and still be able to fold it into kind of like a hands-on making process. Um, and so again, connecting to the space materiality curriculum where there was a project that I used to do that a lot of people did um, called the collapsible chair project, um, mm -hmm. where we, students were really looking at um, mechanical connections and specifically movable me uh, mechanical connections. I was sort of taking that like learning outcome of thinking about stable uh, mechanical connections and applying it to this this uh, uh, project to address the need of uh, a lack of of seating. So sort of framed a pro the project as a creative seating solutions for the Barnes Arboretum, and yeah. it was a, it was a way for students to kind of create these spaces that um, individuals can kind of like hang out at and and um, sometimes just relax. Um, um, have a cup of coffee, meet with a friend, meditate, um, and people sort of use them as these kind of like gathering spaces. So the seating solutions that the students have designed that have been situated at the Arboretum really become um, spaces for people to gather and to sort of relax. And it sort of changes rather than walking through the Arboretum space. Now, depending on the position that the, um, the viewer has of the work and the way that the work's designed to support the viewer's body when they're sitting, and what, what view is framed, whether we're looking at the sky, whether we're looking at trees, whether we're looking at the McGuire Museum or the former da Barnes Foundation uh, building, um, like how does the, the architecture and the natural environment kind of come together based on like what the students have chosen to highlight based on how the viewer's body would be engaging with what they're, with, with the interventions in the space that the students have collaboratively designed and built. So it's mm -hmm. been a, it's been sort of a, a way uh, for me to connect to a lot of these different um, ideas within the, that space materiality framework, and then also a lot of the embodied ideas that that you've been describing. And my one regret is that um, I wish I could do the class as a two two semester class because I never quite have time to be able to really get students to do that like deep dive into the research, into that like embodied research that you're describing. Like there mm. just isn't time in, in the curriculum, the way that it's set up with all, with the environmental ethics content that I'm, that I'm also covering. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love all that liberal arts um, connections um, where you're getting students, you know, thinking across different ways of, of knowing things. Right. But also um, meaning that I, I love that, um, that ethics overlay um, and the, and I also think that, you know, there's this sense of when you go into the Arboretum and the students are asked to produce an actual seating solution, right? Like to actually produce in groups, um, benches, chairs, or, or other forms of seating for people to, you know, in a utilitarian functionality to actually use. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, also my, my students with the performative object, they, you know, they do the site visit, they do, um, observational research, they do traditional forms of research, um, lots of different kinds, um, interviews, mapping, um, you know, reading history and, and articles, uh, talking to people. So, but they, um, you know, they produce this object that uh, connects to their body or is a wearable or is activated um, by their hand or their leg or their foot or whatever, and um, their head sometimes. Um, and then they they do go in teams um, with their classmates, and you have your students working um, in teams also to build their their seating solutions. Um, but they go to the site, right? So they they perform their piece, um, their object, uh, 
um, at the site and their their teammates documented. They, you know, they they look out for each other in terms of, um, you know, anything that might be dangerous or a person that might not be great to interact with. And, um, you know, they 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 sort of by being in the in the park, right, by being outside the safe space of the classroom for this last project and for your project as well, the stakes get, get higher, right? They they take it um, seriously in a, a different way where um, uh, excuses are are not, you know, that might come into a critique or an explanation of what failed or, or worked, like they're actually taking it into the public in this way um, that they have to answer for when they interact with people. And I find that um, they're sort of terrified of it, mm-hmm. um, but, but I, you know, just, I'm curious to see how you do this too, but I, I do, I've run this project since about 2015. Um, and, and I set up systems where even if like everything breaks or it just rains and they, they chose bad materials for wet weather or, um, you know, you know, that, that there's just lots of systems in place for, um, support for mm-hmm. understanding that what we're doing at this point, when you're working relationally, um, you're it you're not in control, right? You set up a thing, you set up an experiment, right? So what what failure looks like is not trying, rather mm-hmm. than if a project breaks or if no one wants to interact with you <laughs> or if yeah. people had a poor response, um, that those are no longer the metrics, right? The met, the metric is, is like p- trying, getting out there, doing, yeah. you know, exploring something new. Yep. Um, yeah. And so uh, what, yeah, I'm curious what systems you put in place, um, for your students, um, just to help them feel confident and supported in doing something that uh, happens outside that sort of safe space of the classroom. Yeah. And I, I, I'd, I'd go back even a little further and say that quite often, uh, since a lot of my students are non-majors and some of them might be art majors, but the the uh, vast majority of them are not not art majors and are not planning to go into the visual arts field. Um, and so for a lot of them, um, a studio art class, this might be their first experience with a, like a, um, a college level studio art class. Mm-hmm. And so they're coming into the the class context with a lot of uncertainty to begin with. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, we go through a lot of woodworking um, tool processes. So I'm showing them the miter saw, I'm showing them band saws, I'm showing them um, handheld pool saws, hammers and chisels. And for a lot of students, um, it's the first time they've used any of the power tools as well. And mm-hmm. in some cases, even the hand tools. And so they, they don't even see the classroom as a safe space to begin with necessarily. <laughs> And yeah. so like a lot of a lot of my job is to sort of get them to sort of feel is to create an environment in the space where like as a yeah, in a classroom community setting, um, the students are supportive of one another. And then I'm working with them in a way where they they know they have to engage, you know, like I, I make it really clear that, um, as, as you said, um, you know, um, not trying is going to be the failure. And so I, I really, one of the techniques that I use is I'll try to scaffold the projects in such a way so that the skill sets are building on one another in a sequential way where there's kind of not so much information that's given that it's overwhelming to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll, I'll also create a grading rubric where that really makes it clear that like using class time productively is a real priority um, for mm-hmm. me. And if I see anybody pulling their phone out, 
um, when when there's something that's been clearly determined as like the activity for the that class period, I'll kind of walk up to them and and not not bring a a, a lot of attention to it, but I'll just sort of point to that the the section on the the grading rubric that sort of says you know. Um, here's a point deduction for not using class time productively. And, and most of the time, I don't even have to deduct the points. I just have to bring their attention to the to the fact that I'm prioritizing that and that they know then that like class time is a space where everybody needs to be engaged. And then that that carries over into the way that they are um, uh, collaboratively designing and then collaboratively building their sculptural seating solutions. And so that's another aspect that's kind of like well scaffolded in a sense. So I'll have students do research into um, creative seating solutions that they see in their in the um, environment that they live and work in, um, and then also um, solutions that they find um, through internet research, um, as well as doing thumbnail sketching and then model making individually, where we're working with foam core and hot glue initially. And then I have them bring those thumbnail, individual thumbnail sketches and individual models into a group context. So that way everybody's kind of bringing something to the table. Mm -hmm. um, and as a group, they'll sort of have conversations around like, all right, what do we, how, if we were going to think about how to solve um, or how to, how to develop a project for this specific site, in this case, it's the Barnes Arboretum Um what what do we what are our design considerations that we want to think about? And I've already sort of stressed that they want to be thinking about you know asymmetry and positive space and negative space and rhythm and repetition and and scale change. So some of those like just general design principles need to be addressed as well. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'll, I'll I'll what I find is it's re it's really interesting once the class shifts into kind of this like group dynamic. Um, the students tend to pick up and and work really effectively without a whole lot of intervention from my part. I can just kind of like organize it. Everybody sort of um, sees kind of like what their role is. And then they just kind of, I step back at, at that point. And, and I'm kind of, I've facilitated that context and then I'm kind of letting them kind of work it out. Um, and one of the things that I think is interesting about the St. Joseph's environment is that there's a lot of, um, there's like 20 division one sports teams at the university. Mm. A lot of the students are on these um, uh, teams that are competing at a, a very high level. Um, and so they're used to functioning within this like group dynamic, within this sort of teamwork dynamic quite often. Um, but they're not used to doing it in the context of like creative problem solving and like creative decision making. Mm -hmm. um, so it's kind of like a new shift, like kind of where you're what, uh, earlier, you'd mentioned those like interdisciplinary connections. Like I actually see sort of the collaborative work as like a, um, a an important part of the inter interdisciplinary investigation of, of the class because um, they're taking kind of these like group dynamic skills that they've learned in whatever other contexts in life and within different team sports and clubs and different things that they're all participating in but then they're bringing it back into the studio art environment. Um, and yeah. it, 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 I'm always surprised, like the projects um, genuinely, even for the, for students that are not art majors and are not planning to go into the visual arts field. And even when they are, I'm just surprised at the enormous amount of inventiveness that students will bring um, once they get over the fact that like, oh, I'm not an artist, you know, like once they kind of get past that type of type of thinking and they think like, all right, you're not, a, you you might not be planning to go into that visual arts field, but that doesn't mean that you don't have the capacity for creative problem solving, right? And then I try to draw that that line too, where it's like, 
the skills that we're practicing here, the visual arts is really well situated to teach like creative problem solving are going to serve you in any other aspect of your life, working or personal life, you know, right? Like how do you strategically think about navigating conflict and navigating um, obstacles, right? Um, right. So I, I think it's a, it's a, just a, it's a really interesting opportunity in that way. So like then when they're kind of going out into the environment and they're installing their pieces, it's almost like the hard work has been done. And so they've, they've kind of done it all in like the model making phase and they've taken all their chances with foam core and hot glue. So that when it comes time to actually start building on a full scale, um, they've got a pretty solid plan in place. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking about how, um, the project you're talking about is developed over an entire semester, right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, and how the the so in terms of scale, like the project I'm doing is um, a little less than a third of the semester, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I'm thinking about how you get to <laughs> um, how you get to sort of just develop ideas and skill sets, particularly woodworking, um, really thoroughly to set these students up for, as you said, as they, you know, they put out these maquettes and models um, where they're testing out a lot of different things and seeing what works and then conversing and agreeing on that um, before pursuing it in, um, you know, wood in a material that takes more time and um, resource and monetary investment. Um, to work with. So, um, you know, I, I think whenever I'm, I'm telling any, anyone who, um, teaches in higher ed about this project, um, I think, you know, there's so much content to unravel with this project with the students, um, that, that they're always like, how do you fit this into a, a first year curriculum where you have all these, you know, 3d making skill sets that you have to cover too. And, um, you, you touched on that, um, in terms of thinking about the, the, the emphasis in this space materiality class um, curriculum on um, mechanical connections, right? So um, this is, you know, some of these skill sets we de I develop um, over the course of the semester. In the first and the second project, too, um, we were looking at a lot of mechanical connections, sheet goods. Um, we'd use a wood shop. Uh, they do use fabric a little bit, but in the last project, I introduced um, several hand sewing and machine sewing methods you know, how to put things together that might um, need to move, have joints, need to stay together if it's windy or if there being, um, you know, uh, uh, an object that might um, have to sort of telescope or retract or open or close or whatever. So, um, you know, they, they, they are still using um, a lot of the first year 3D design um, techniques and skills. Um, but we, I build in um, a project sort of with different stakes and, and content then um, that becomes exciting. But yeah, and I feel like that's the key to sort of like the successful attainment of those skills, too, is like having them sort of scaffold like your third project is building on your first two in a way where they're able to start your 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 learn your main focus in in the um uh, the the research project related to Washington Square Park is not mechanical connections, but I'm I'm guessing that um, chances are, if students want to, they're able they've got that skill set in place where they know they could use pop rivets, so they could use wood screws or something something exactly. along those lines where that would facilitate the construction of whatever it was that they were that they were sort of conceptualizing. Right. Yeah. So I mean, a, a lot of hardware. Um sheet goods, including sheet metal and plywood, you know, is covered in the, um, 
well, the second project, the second project is a bit longer than the other two. Um, and we just kind of cover so many um, methods of manipulating materials mm -hmm. that come in planar form, soft and mm -hmm. hard, and, yeah, and, yeah. and how to put them together without tape and glue. Um, and then the third project, it happens really quick. And when I first um, started teaching, of course, that was just like, I'm running out of time at the end of the semester. But um, it, it then it became a strategy because um, there's so much, there's so many things to like maybe worry about um, when you're doing an on-site project, when you're going out into the world, when you're interacting with the public rather than just your peers and or other academics. And um, I think there's a sense in which um, pushing this last project through um, almost so quickly that they, you know, they do a proposal, they do the site research and the site guide, um, some prompt questions, they make a proposal, and then they just make it and go, you know, I don't, I don't belabor it, like, what else might you, <laughs> what else might you try? What, um, they just get a, they get a lot of individual feedback while they're working, but um, they really kind of go out and they can use any of the skill sets um, or materials that we've used all semester. Uh, with the addition of um, kind of a sewing intensive in that last project. So, oh, cool. yeah, I'm always um, thinking about that, you know, how we fit in all the things that we need to make sure students get skill wise in that class, but still um, kind of keep the projects alive in a way that feels real, you know, alive to, yep. to the students, relevant, right? Yep. Um, yeah. One of the things I really appreciated about um, teaching the, the class at Parsons was like I, I sort of came to sculpture from a, a background within the building trades. So like thinking about woodworking right. and metalworking as they relate to the building trades. And that that gives you a certain type of uh, orientation of thinking about like form and space and also like mechanical connections that need to support weight. Um, mm -hmm. And I was always fascinated by the solutions for mechanical connect connections that the students that had, were planning to go into the fashion route, the fashion industry, and uh -huh. fashion design would be developing within their projects Absolutely. and they were working with like buckles and straps and and uh snaps and things that were like com uh, mechanical connections but like completely not on my radar right uh, ones that i just you just wouldn't think about in like a woodworking context right right oh I, I always love that when the students would just completely surprise me with a um a solution that accomplished exactly what they needed to but would, would have been just so far out of my own like um, sense of like how I work with materials and space that I, it never would have even crossed my mind to have that solution. Uh, so I always really appreciated that. Absolutely, yeah, they're they're astonishing. Um, one other thing that I was thinking about was, um, you know, how how do you how do you or how do we sort of prep students throughout the semester? Um, what came up for me when you brought up the idea of when when the phone comes out in class and you're like, hey, you have a job that you're accountable to um, during this two, three, four hours, whatever it is, right? Um, and and the phone isn't really part of that. And I know that you know anybody who's teaching at this time knows that that moment. Um, and I I I think that I I'm always curious about how we approach that in terms of setting up. A situation and a value system, even especially in a first year class where um, students actually prefer, I will never say 100% of the time, um, I can't hold myself to that either in terms of being able to just ignore my phone, but um, just prefer to actually be present with each other or like actually 
forget about their phone for a minute. Like, how can we set up a project or um, a question or a conversation in the classroom where students would actually prefer to be part of it than to be on their phone? And um, I think I think by by doing this work that takes them out of the the actual classroom, um, it it enlivens them to yeah, yeah. world again, right? Yep. And yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point. And a lot of what you were describing um, about working in the um, Newburgh Land Bank project, a lot of it had to do with this, like being aware of your own body, of one's own body, mm -hmm. um, and being aware of kind of like the physical environment, uh, the the ecological environment. Um, and, and that's, you know, we get a lot of information through our phones, but we're still engaging with a screen in that way. And so right. like when, when the attention shifts back to these things that are like, um, that are actually our brains and our bodies have evolved, you know, over the thousands of years, uh, humans have been a species. It's, I think there's something very surprising about that because oftentimes that level of awareness, um, uh, is, is hiding in plain sight. Yeah. I, and I, you know, since I started, um, you know, it's evolved over the years, but I, I started doing a similar project to this, um, I think it, in the fall of 2015, when I started Parsons, and um, this is, I, I see a shift that feels hopeful, which is, um, you know, during the pandemic, when I shifted my, shifted this class to online, <clears throat> and students and myself and all of us were, were just so anxious and so, um, you know, just perplexed as to how to, how to keep things going. And it, um, and also just filled with a lot of different kinds of fear. And um, I started a breathing practice with my students at the mm -hmm. start of each online section. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the, those students who were online for the rest of that semester really, really were, just seemed to be so grateful for it, you know, and like not talk a lot about it, but just really seemed to do it with, um, with a lot of sense of authentic needing it. And um, there was no sort of like somebody's, doing something else during that couple of minutes at the start of class. And then when we went back in the classroom, it, you know, I, I continued to do it and it was really uncomfortable for me. It was really hard, you know, like, mm -hmm. uh, I don't, I don't have training in the, in breathing practices or particularly in yoga, but, um, you know, I just was like, we're just breathing in mm -hmm. and out and thinking mm -hmm. about just that for a minute, two minutes at tops, you know, and students had a really hard time, but th there's like another shift that's happening now where, um, you know, I'll have midterm reviews with students and they'll say, I'll ask them what's going well and, um, what, what, what I can be doing better to support them. And they, a lot of students say now, you know, I know it's a little awkward sometimes, or I'm not always ready for it when I get there, but I'm always glad we just take that minute or two of silence at the start of class. And sometimes I'll introduce a little strategy. Anyway, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is like, um, how do you build, how do you build up, right? Um, a sense that a a 19 year olds um, in our contemporary society is gonna not just do it, but um, find it meaningful to walk from a classroom through Manhattan to Washington Square Park and around the park in silence, mm -hmm. uh, breathing deeply to help stay warm, um, watching rather than speaking. Um, like how do you kind of set students up to say like, this is actually important you know, yeah. it's, it's not a, a, an exercise in um, like 
mechanical connections. It's like, how do I make this connection to make this object, to make this thing I started to feel really strongly about? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. It has to do with their, I'm really convinced that it has to do with their bodies and um, that they are really coming to me at the end of the semester, um, feeling that that's important in a way that's new and makes me feel really hopeful. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes perfect sense too. Um, one other, uh, my, my last question for you, um, has to do with the, the, you had mentioned earlier, a site guide um, and the reflection prompts that you do uh, before or after the Washington Square Park visit. Um, could you, could you give us a sense of like what, like kind of what those prompts are, how, how you structure that? Yeah, you know, I always do it differently. Um, and I think I've just taught the project a number of times that I, you know, like this time I had to shorten the visit. So we did the prompts afterward. <laughs> um, other times I prefer to like introduce the site guide, like what is a site? What is, uh, how do we think about sense of place? Um, you know, these just general sort of setting up for the project. Um, mm -hmm. But because of the weather this semester, I did all that after we went to the park and then I did the prompts after. So it's just to say, I always do it differently. And I kind of, there's enough room in this project to like stress whatever's working for a particular group, kind of like thinking on my feet. But in general, um, you know, we we just start um, by watching a couple of videos and looking at a handful of artists um, that that make objects that are, again, activated by the body or extend the body somehow into a different relationship to others or their environment. Mm -hmm. um we watched but, a lot in Calcetina so that yeah. sort of places it within like um a, a certain uh, theoretical framework in that sense for the students yeah and also art history you know I don't have yeah. time yeah I used to try to have the students read Joseph Boys and I used to have you know I used to have them do um much more um like research but I just find it like there's just not time, right, um, to do all that. So I, I always just am looking for like someone will do a, a something that relates to social sculpture, you know, and um, uh, and I, I, you know, I'll bring in Joseph Boyce here. I'll bring in Yoko Ono there, um, and I'll just try to give them a sense that this is actually not a new way of working, right? To them, it's right. very like this is even art, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I just kind of give them a sense that there's there's a a history of what to what I'm asking them to do. Um, yeah. And and the site guide, call it an observational uh, research walk. And I, it just says, you know, this is a, um, a walk we're taking to Washington Square Park and back. And I tell them the entire walk is the experience. And their their job is to give their full attention to the task at hand, right? And so, mm -hmm. you know, I just talking about how I prepare them to do that throughout mm -hmm. the semester, even through thinking about their breathing um, and to use their senses to preserve, uh, perceive their surroundings. Mm -hmm. um, and then later to use their intellect to explore some more specific questions about it, right? So there's a sense that I'm saying like, just be in your body, almost just giving them permission to not think mm -hmm. <laughs> or to not know what they're gonna do yet. Like they're yeah. not there in the park trying to come up with a project. Um, they're trying to come up with um, answers to simple prompts like, what did you notice? which directions did energy flow? Mm. What repelled you? Uh, what seemed to draw you to it? Like, why did you turn one way instead of another at, at, at a yeah. point that you remember? Yeah. Um, 
what feelings came up for you while you were there? Did you talk to anyone or did anyone talk to you? Um, so the sense of like where a project starts um, is just what what interested them from the experience, not mm -hmm. like, actually, I, I'm interested in climate change. So I want to work on something with, you know, whatever, like they don't come with a preconception. I really encourage them to for their idea to develop out of something um, that happened on that observational research park uh, mm -hmm. walk and that they then learn something more about. So it's a place where I like to acknowledge with the students that we are, you know, in the classroom, they already are aware of and in the park on the ancestral land of the Lenape and talk a little bit about how that land might have been used, about the creek that once ran through that space, how that land was Popper's Field, a burial ground for the poor during the American Revolution. Supposedly, folks who were considered traitors may have been hung from from trees in the park. You know, we we look at the different layers of written and unwritten history and and take those as points to explore or relate to our our lived experiences in the park. Um, and that's something that I take very seriously in my own practice as well, working on the house project and kind of trying to bring attention to how the concerns, ecological concerns, how the social and ecological go together are, are finding roots a lot of times in the native histories and knowledge systems of the Manse Lenape and Mexican people who have been there well before white settlers like myself have come in and, and done our work in living here. So, um, you know, the the questions um, this last semester, I, I really shifted them because the, the the cold threw us all for a loop, like it made me, it threw me for a loop. Um, and so when we, you know, when I, when we got back, um, students kind of warmed themselves and I said, while you're out there, what delighted you? <laughs> um, what seemed weird mm -hmm. uh, what seemed curious and sometimes they'll say nothing right like nothing mm -hmm. seemed strange it seemed like a very normal day and mm -hmm. I was like describe what normal is you know and so what made you feel uncomfortable so it's just like really simple prompts mm -hmm. um, yeah. what what was one thing um, that you experienced that you felt curious about I wonder why that large tree is there. Well, that's mm -hmm. one of the oldest trees in Manhattan. And there's a lot of information about, it. you know, like just one Absolutely. thing that you feel curious about. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, cause I'll, I'll talk about social sculpture and happenings in the sculpture in the environment class. Um, and then I'll have students doing research on social practice-based artists that are kind of doing a lot to, you know, grow food and share meals with, um, with one another. And that that's, that you know and their students are often surprised to find that artists are then appropriating like the production and sharing of food as like part of an artistic practice mm -hmm. and actual like the social interactions um can be framed as a um as an artwork in in and of themselves and then I'll kind of go a step further and talk about like the collaborative nature of the way the class is organized. And I'll talk about how like the class is actually an example of social sculpture. Mm -hmm. And then like what we're going through together um, can be framed as an example of social sculpture. And at, at that point, they're kind of like, huh? Like we're doing this too, you know, like um, especially yeah. for majors that haven't taken um, very many art history classes or maybe even any art history classes, they might not have come across those frameworks before and those themes within an art historical context. So I always like to kind of be able to draw that 
um, draw those connections for them and then remind them that like we're kind of all going through that together um, and that that's actually like an experience that we're all sharing um, at the same time too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking about, um, you know, I had an earlier class this fall and at, at 4 PM. So it was just before the sunset and um, Oh, sorry. The one at, no, I had one at noon and one at um, 4 PM and the, the noon one, of course it was still daylight and um, the students were sort of, we got to the park and they dispersed and um, there was, there's this man, I believe they call him Larry the Pigeon Man or something like that, <laughs> who's always in Washington Square Park. And he's got this relationship with the pigeons where they know he's going to have food. And um, they actually, like hundreds of pigeons will respond to his command. I mean, it's, it's, fairly, it's very interesting um, social ecological phenomena that's happening there. Of course, the students kind of gravitated, many, a whole group of them gravitated to what this guy was doing and sort of like they were just astonished that the pit, these wild pigeons were listening to him and um, landing on his arm. And, um, you know, it took a little bit, but, and I was observing the students, so the students were observing him and the pigeons and, um, and, and the, the pigeon man um, kind of had a pigeon on his arm and then um, sort of handed the pigeon to hop onto one of the students' arms. And, and I was like, Oh, okay. So the pigeon is sitting on the student's, you know, coat on, on her arm and, um, she's just sort of like really in really excited like you just thrilled to sort of be like having this physical contact with an animal and um yeah. delight just delighted you know and then the guy next to her is like um I, you know i couldn't hear what he said but but basically standing there kind of putting his arm out like can i can you have the pigeon hop to me and and mm -hmm. they just had this moment like just this mm -hmm. random guy in the park where they had a short exchange and and a shared moment of delight yeah. with this pigeon and you know like i have all kinds of questions about like what's this guy feeding the pigeons and is this really good for the all, you know all sorts of critical questions but that that shared moment of delight is this moment um where i think you know that that student then you know made work from that that sh that short um interaction with a stranger and um that that to me is is really really exciting yeah. um but i was thinking steve about um how some of these prompts i'm always asking a students like what delighted you but also what made you angry or frustrated what made you uncomfortable and then a, a question that often gets um interesting responses is um what pulled you drew you to it made you want to look closer and i was thinking about your your work and your um this transitional spaces series that you have been working on um for the last few years and of course are, are currently making new iterations of um, and how that that project started um, with a moment where you're sort of like in a plane over the Southwest and something just kind of with with unexpected agency draws your attention. Would, would you be mm -hmm. interested in talking about that? Yeah, yeah, that, I think that's a really interesting parallel. Um, and it's one it's it's one area where I've been surprised that the research that I've done for the sculpture in the environment class uh, curriculum, where the readings that I've done in the field of environmental ethics, has actually been impacting the 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 development of that body of work and the way that I think about it and the way that I talk about that body of work. Um, so essentially, with with that work, I'm I'm looking at um, the the landscape in the Great Plains region, southern the southern uh, Great Plains, and the way that the landscape has been entirely transformed through the process of groundwater pivot irrigation uh, that supports industrial agriculture, and the way in the southern Great Plains 
um, that that the the aquifer there, the Ogallala aquifer, is uh, pretty much a non-renewable resource because it's such an arid climate. Um, the aquifer, um, which has been there for thousands of years, and that native people have been um, um, native people have been living on the landscape um, sustainably for thousands of years. Uh, without any any harm or depletion of the aquifer and within a um, a, a relatively short number of uh, decades um, the demands of industrial agriculture have basically been draining the, the aquifer in the in the southern great plains uh, far more quickly than it can be replenished so water that's been there for thousands of years uh, is very likely not going to be there for another 50 to 100 years um, and so my, that whole body of work that you mentioned, the Transitional Spaces series, is is really looking at, um, one, the, the mark making in the landscape as it relates to drawing and painting traditions, but also to land art, um, but then also looking at these unsustainable natural resource um, practices that are there, are, that are in place, essentially to meet market demands of like um, beef production and cotton production and things like that. Um, so these natural resources that are being... Uh, utilized uh, 2,000 miles away from where I live on the East Coast. Um, and in, in some cases, it seems far away and not a local connection, although it sort of became one when my brother moved out to that region, which is kind of how I started to uh, get more familiar with it. Uh, but now living, um, continuing to live and work on the East Coast, I'm realizing that um, even though I'm talking about groundwater that's um, being utilized 2,000 miles away, it's really all of the market demands that um, that are in place that are allowing and causing that um, the groundwater to be extracted in such a way. Um, so every you know every hamburger, every uh, pair of blue jeans uh, that are made is very likely um, coming from from that region unless it's very locally sourced. Um, um. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and and there's this the way I mean this has provided uh, like several years of evolving research in um, the forms your work is taking and and just like connecting and connecting and connecting the you know these ecological entanglements with waters water systems and the movement and in use of water as a, a resource and the movement of those resources around um, the land but um, it it really I was thinking about this moment where it, it began, if I remember correctly, right? You were, were you flying to visit your brother, and mm -hmm. just this aesthetic moment of being like, "Here's this painterly, like what I when I think of those paintings um, that you've made for this series, um, you know, they're they're very abstract, um, you know, zoomed in from bird's eye view in the airplane um, views of." overhead of, of the landscape uh, where the, you know, the irrigated land is, seg you know, segmented into plots and fields and um, there's clear rectangles and squares and strange um, um, trapezoids. And, and then there's all these circles made by the pivots and um, you seeing that aesthetically saying um, maybe there's like, there's, there's definitely an aesthetic, um, beauty there a composition in the lands in the you know the constructed landscape but um there's and then sort of going from um here i'm having a response aesthetically then i'm having a question why is it like that and then it's just question after question kind of unfold and i think the way that happened is a is a really good model actually for the way that i teach this last project like mm -hmm. start with just a response 
then go, what are the questions about that? Why did I have that response? So I find that I find it really beautiful unfolding. Yeah, that's an interesting parallel. Um, and it, it's been surprising for me to see um, like this, this um, series of work, the transitional spaces series um, got started right around the same time that I was developing the curriculum for the sculpture and the environment class. And, and now when I'm starting out the semester and I'm showing students images of, of my own creative practice kind of on day one, and um, I'm able to really draw these connections of like, look, here's how I'm approaching this, this, I, this um, idea of this relationship between sculpture and the environment. Like here's some connections that I've been, that I've been researching in different ways that relate to um, environmental topics and issues and concerns that we're going to be spending um, the, uh, the bulk of the semester kind of investigating and researching in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, it's been, it's been a really interesting area where, um, my pedagogical practice has um, informed my creative practice and my creative practice has informed my pedagogical practice. Yeah, I, I've really appreciated, um, you know, over the years that I've known you and that we've been, you know, sharing um, both our, our professional and teaching practices um, with each other uh, coming from the space materiality class. I've really appreciated uh, your your continuous or, uh, you know, like regular <laughs> um sort of conscious effort to be connecting what's going on in in your artistic practice to your teaching practice and and kind of um prompting or asking me all the time to investigate that connection in mind too because I like I said earlier I often see them as as quite different since I've been teaching this first year class and then I'll realize like I'm using a phrase um in in class that I've been sort of working with at home and and you, you've kind of really raised my awareness of mm -hmm both how important it is to like almost kind of, you know, not in an arrogant way, but almost rather a vulnerable way to let the questions that we have in our, you know, that, that really fuel why we're an artist, right? Like mm -hmm. to let those questions come up in class too, without trying to necessarily put a statement or an answer to it. Um, and I think students really, that's how they come to authentic work, right? Like even in a first year class, um, they might come, you know, to some authentic work that uh, they they. If you're modeling a vulnerability, if you're modeling a, a passion, you know, like um, mm -hmm. and, and tying those things together, I, I've really appreciated in this conversation as well how you you really um, always help me to bring them together. Yeah, and likewise too. And I'm always one of the things I always appreciate about our conversations too over the years is the way that you're kind of coming at those connections um, in a similar way, but also. Um, from a different angle um, than, than I would come at them. So mm -hmm. I always, I always just appreciate kind of that variety of the the viewpoint, how it's different than, than my own uh, sensibility, but how it can, you know, how, how you, our, our conversations then can inform kind of discussions that I'll have with students in the classroom in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just sort of really appreciate kind of those connections that you bring to your work and to your teaching as well. Yeah. Likewise. Thank you, Steve. Yeah, no, thank you. It was a great conversation. Thanks a lot for sharing your, your feedback and your input.